Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. One of the exciting things about a winery during harvest, it definitely recalls charrette time for architects where people aren't sleeping, uh, they're working all hours for a good three weeks to four weeks, and like the chaos is palpable. The interventions of the seismic retrofitting that needed to happen, certain things like that, that sort of required it to have some of those uh, of that integrity. We were able to bring that integrity into it. There were so many reasons to, to do it and reasons we didn't even understand in, in, the, in the beginning of the pursuit that sort of all kind of made sense by the time we were done. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Cherise Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guests today are Chris Brown and Brent Linden, principals and co-founders of Linden Brown Architecture. Raised in the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas, Chris Brown earned his Bachelor of Architecture from the University of Arkansas, receiving traveling fellowships to study internationally in both Rome and Mexico City. After completing those studies, Chris worked in several internationally recognized design practices, including Marlon Blackwell Architects, who was recently a guest here in Portland, and Allied Works, where he led numerous significant civic, institutional, and residential projects. As a founding partner of Lyndon Brown Architecture, Chris brings his extensive experience and sensitive design approach to every project, creating thoughtful spaces with tactile materials and abundant natural light. Chris also teaches graduate design studios at the University of Oregon School of Architecture and Environment, Go Ducks, serves on design juries, and is a member of the Professional Advisory Board at the University of Arkansas, Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design. Brent Linden was born and raised in South Florida, achieving his Bachelor of Architecture degree at the University of Florida School of Architecture and Construction with honors. After working at Skidmore Owings in Maryland, New York, or SOM, 
Brent completed his master's at Rice University, receiving significant awards and fellowships. He spent 15 years at Allied Works, primarily leading the design of cultural institutions, creative workspaces, and residences. After holding a series of leadership positions there, including design director and director of the New York office, Brent co-founded Lyndon Brown Architecture in 2018. Brent has taught design studios, presented lectures, and sat on design juries at numerous universities, including University of Oregon, University of Florida, the University of Texas at Austin, MIT, and Cornell University. The project we're going to talk about today is the Sequitur Winery in Newburgh, Oregon. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.arcat.com slash podcast. On an historic property in the Willamette Valley, just outside of Newburgh, Oregon, a love for winemaking and reverence for history converged on an abandoned dairy farm from the 1930s. You know, the story for us, you know, really starts with Michael Etzel and Carrie Critchlow. They are two people that found each other late in life, married sometime in the 2000 aughts. Uh, Michael was a winemaker, has been a winemaker for a long time, is, has some world renown for the Pinot Noir that he makes with uh, a label called Beaufrere. And he wanted to build a second winery really as a legacy project. Two of his sons are winemakers. And so he just wanted to be able to pass something on to his family. Carrie was enamored by growing grapes and, and pressing them and serving the wine to people, just as Michael is. And, and so part of their, their marriage was you know, starting this, this wine label and to create something together. And Michael and Carrie live on a property adjacent to the property that ultimately became Sequitur Winery at the Etzel Farm. And there was a, a disused dairy barn that was built in the 1930s built out of the timbers that came from the hillside. The question many times came up, what would a farmer do? And, you know, a farmer would build the building out of the materials that are on the property. And so it had this great patina. Michael and Carrie loved the building. Ultimately, when it came up for sale, they jumped on it. So they came to us with that and had a pretty good idea of what they wanted to do. But the main thing was saving the soul of the farm. Yeah, Michael, you know, in addition to his own personal sort of love of that, of that farm, he's been in that community for a long time, you know, decades, as Brent mentioned. And he has a real sort of attitude of stewardship of, of a lot of different things, but of, of most, you know, sort of the priority is the land. And so by sort of taking over this farm, it was really sort of almost like a stewardship project for, for him, you know, and in the community. So he, he wanted to sort of save it as a legacy for his family, but also for the community and make sure that it, it sort of had a productive life past its, its life as, as being a, a dairy farm. With the barn envisioned as the soul of the winery, the project would become a meticulous dance between old and new. Really, the, the first and foremost goal was to save the barn, to amplify the sort of soul of of the winery, which was going to be this this barn, so so much of the decision making sort of led towards that that barn as being the kind of a fulcrum for the whole for the whole project. The site plan is sort of arranged where you know the barn is at the center and the the new buildings kind of pinwheel around it. And it creates almost like a 
like a woodworking joint where the, the barn is the center pin, um, where those adjacent pieces of, uh, of timber don't really work without that, without the center pin being there. Mm-hmm. Really the, you know, the barn becomes the nucleus and these, these other buildings kind of pinwheel out from it. And in doing so, they sort of, they create these a hospitality court and a work court. So there's, there's kind of productive outdoor space that's created by the, the kind of space between the new, the new buildings and the old buildings. But it wasn't just the barn that was there. We, there was an old uh, sort of hay shed structure. There was uh, the silo, which was a vertical sort of concrete stave structure. There was a, a milk shed, which was a terracotta block building. Sweet little house almost looks like a, you know, like a monopoly house. It's like perfectly proportioned monopoly house. And so th- those were some other sort of found objects that, that we had uh, to work with at the when when we sort of came to the project. So, and all of those, you know, coming from from the owner were were highly of high importance to to keep and have some dialogue with. I mean, he he realized that we can't sort of encapsulate these in time forever. I mean, we we needed to sort of create a new life for this place, but. There, there was always going to be sort of a, a clarity into when, when you arrive at this project that what, what was new and, and what was old and, and the kind of like the dialogue that's happening between those two things. To piggyback on that, there was a, this, this ethic of resourcefulness that existed. It, you know, Michael and Carrie, Michael grew up on a farm, so he comes from a farm background and there the, that ethic of resourcefulness, I think, was imbued in him then. And so it's what can we reuse here? So all of these bits and pieces that exist at the farm, like the imperative was always, a, a, let's, what's the best way to occupy these spaces? So part of the programming phase was, okay, how do we use these old structures and how do we uh, you know, engage in them to turn what was being used by cows to make and farmers to make milk to be used to, to press grapes, put them in barrel, uh, and to serve from the people to make you know, this sort of world-class wine that existed there. So there's a, not only did they have this real love for history and the, the barn was sort of the marker of that history, but this just ethic of resourcefulness that really permeated the entire project. So many times we came back to like, how do we use this thing? Can we use this thing? That happened in design and in construction. It's sort of how we approach a lot of the, the work in our, in our studio. And there, there, there are always these sort of... Uh, these elements within the project that become non-negotiable to a certain sense. And probably because of my Southern roots, I, I call these the sacred cows of the, of the project. And in this project, it couldn't have been more apt. You know, there, there are just these elements that really became guideposts for how the party of the project came together. And then how both from a functionality standpoint, but also from an experiential standpoint. The project scope consisted of rehabilitating and repurposing the 7,500-square-foot barn for winemaking. In addition, 11,000 square feet of new structures were added for wine production support and hospitality spaces, all set within an active farm. So the Sequitur Winery, you'd be driving on North Valley Road into the Shehalem Creek Valley for verdant green wetlands, forested hillsides, and you drive up and see what looks like a farm compound, a barn compound, and drive onto the property. And as you approach it, you could tell the barn is historic. We re, we're able to reuse the, many aspects of the barn, but the roofing panels are these rusted galvanized roofing panels from back in the 1930s. 
and then surrounded by Corten steel bar buildings that put the barn at the center of the project, but also create working and hospitality courtyards adjacent to the barn. And so it's a red barn building with Corten steel, corrugated Corten steel bar buildings that surround it on a working farm. There are, there's a greenhouse, there's a, a fruiting orchard, there are hens, there are goats, there are, uh, there's a cutting garden, there's compost rows. And so there's the smells and the sounds of a, of a working farm, as well as, especially during harvest season, the chaos of grapes arriving and grapes being pressed and people just running around pell-mell. I think one of the exciting things about a winery during harvest, it definitely recalls charrette time for architects where people aren't sleeping, uh, they're working all hours for a good three weeks to four weeks, and like, the chaos is palpable. To salvage the barn, it would have to embrace a new life with modern interventions, from seismic retrofitting to skylights. To achieve some of the updates, similar to another project on a recent episode, it too had to be lifted. It was imperative from the beginning that we were going to be reusing it. And one of the things we figured out was there wasn't enough height. You know, barns still have pretty good floor-to-floor heights. The barn is a two-story structure. But there wasn't enough height. We needed to lift it up, not only because we did need to raise the foundations. Uh, the, the concrete was poured in the 30s, poured by the farmer, wasn't really done very well. And so that it was it was failing. So that needed new foundations, but they also just needed more head height. And luckily, it's only three feet. Oh, my gosh, 30 feet. I can't imagine. It would have been a completely different adventure if it was 30 feet. Because three feet, you know, you're not getting it too far into the wind plane. There's only so much shoring that needed to happen. But the... The technique is pretty simple. It's hydraulic jacks and crib stacks. Uh, you know, it's railroad ties set together in a, in, a, in a square. It's almost like Jenga. You build up a Jenga, little Jenga piles under some steel beams. You know, there's four big steel beams that cross the entire barn to bring all those loads down to the ground. And you just do it slowly. It probably only took three days to lift that thing up. And then it was probably in the air for two months while they raised the foundations and, and report it. Luckily for us, we knew that this was imperative from the beginning. And the structural engineers that we work with, Grumble Engineering here in Portland, Oregon, they do restoration work. And so they had a good connection with a building uh, mover. And so we brought them on board. And all the contractors that Michael had talked to originally were like, you just want to raise that. It, like, you know, Either they wanted the work or they didn't see the value in the barn, but ultimately it didn't cost very much to lift this barn up and save them hundreds of thousands of dollars in structure and enclosure that they were able to keep because they, they end up moving the entire fermentation facility into, into that barn that they kept. Well, we realized, you know, we were committed to this, no question. I mean, it, it, it was one of these guideposts of the project. You know, we'd be lying if we weren't a little intimidated by this idea of taking what is the soul of the project and lifting it up, removing its foundations, making new ones, and then putting it back down. But w- once we got into it, what we sort of realized, which makes a lot of sense, is that there's almost no better type of a structure to lift up into the air than a kind of flexible, heavy timber barn, diaphanous barn structure. You know, this wasn't made out of brick. It wasn't sort of a masonry building where... We, we had to sort of rely on, on incredible tolerances as we were lifting it up. This, this had a lot of flexibility in it, which became very fortuitous in how the barn was lifted, but also how it came back down. Now, we, we realized that the, the way in which it had 
settled over time and just, you know, time had, had sort of taken a little bit of a toll on this thing and it, it wasn't square anymore and it wasn't plumb anymore. But we, we were able to make these foundations, which were dimensionally what we needed and accurate. And the, the corners were 90 degrees. And then bringing the, the barn back down, we could sort of realign itself again. Because, you know, this thing's only held together by nails. And it's there's a lot of sort of flexibility in that as a structure. So we were able to square it up and make it plumb again, which made it sort of a... a you know, perfect for then kind of coming back with the the interventions of the seismic retrofitting that needed to happen, certain things like that that sort of required it to have some of those uh, of that integrity. We were able to bring that integrity into it. There were so many reasons to to do it, and reasons we didn't even understand in, in the in the beginning of the pursuit that sort of all kind of made sense by the time we were done. The the last bit of this, the adventurous part primarily for the contractors, they're taking on the liability of uh, shoring this building up during construction. So they were definitely sweating for those two months that that thing was in the air. You know, they, there was guy wires, there were, there were, there were shoring techniques that they used, but they were really happy when that barn was back <laughs> down the ground. With the structure only three feet above, it seems like a tight space to install a new foundation. Chris and Brent expanded on how that process worked. Well, the barn's up three feet. Everything gets demolished and, and carted off. Some of that old concrete was used. You know, there's a lot of reuse in this project. But with a barn up that high, first thing is to rebuild the foundation walls. A barn is basically a big shell with some sticks inside. And so we had to place these foundation walls on the perimeter. So they were able to pour the perimeter. And so that's, that's when the barn got set back down, when the perimeter was poured. And then underneath the posts in the center, you know, the barn is a lot like a, like a cathedral building. You know, where it's structure on the sides, you know, a two, two column lines of structure creating a central aisle. So those were poured with sauna tubes, pretty, pretty local endeavor, mm-hmm. about 65 feet wide. So not so long where you can't get that concrete from a truck from one side to those, those central sauna tubes. Pour the thing back down. And then luckily when we, because we raised it up uh, three feet, it had about a 18 foot floor to floor. And so on the interior, when the rest of the, the slabs were poured and the foundation pedestals for the, the, the concrete fermentation tanks that got in, installed inside, these fermentation tanks are enormous, very heavy. So they had their own foundations to deal with. There was enough height inside the barn. You know, if this was a residential structure with a 12-foot floor-to-floor, 10-foot floor-to-floor, a bit of a different deal. But luckily enough, we had enough vertical height inside. You know, there was a remarkable amount of volume within that barn. And then they were, they were able to sort of, you know, negotiate the, the, the columns, the posts that were existing because they didn't, there weren't that many of them. So there, there was actually quite a lot of room to work. And it's funny, it makes a lot of sense because now I'm even baffled that it was only three feet because it felt like it was nine feet in the air at the time. You yeah. know, it really, it really the, the perception of the amount of space under there was pretty significant. A goal to stay true to the barn's original character influenced structural design strategies when it came to the seismic retrofit. Lots of steel cross bracing. So there's, I think the barn had six bays, uh, structural bays in its long axis, three structural bays in its short axis, steel rod cross bracing with custom-formed collars that would hit the joints where the two floors met and up at the roof. You know, really just a, a lot of collars and a lot of collar ties and rods helped shore that up. 
the, the barn really had no lateral bracing at all. It, it just relied on, it had some kickers, you know, between the, the posts and beams, but to any sort of contemporary standard, it wouldn't, it, it, it didn't really work. And so lateral bracing needed to be placed only, you know, for, for the sort of structural integrity of the barn itself, just to meet, you know, the codes that we have now for human occupation. And in doing so, those, those kind of like did double duty for as the seismic bracing mm-hmm. as well. And one of the things that we were really became really clear as we got into it is that the, the barn is unconditioned. There are some conditioned spaces within the barn, but generally it's an unconditioned, almost like a pavilion. And so part of the reasoning there was that we, we didn't want to forfeit the sort of beautiful interior quality of the barn or any of the beautiful exterior quality of the barn, meaning that we didn't want to sort of build or fur out walls on the inside to insulate for the conditioning. And we also didn't want to do that from the outside. We really wanted this thing to be as, as sort of pure to its original self as possible. So it's, you know, it's a timber skeleton with a board and batten siding on top of it. That also meant that we did, we couldn't really build any sort of lateral bracing walls within the, the structure itself. And so the, this, kind of idea of these elegant, thin tension rods that sort of create the X-bracing for both the lateral support and the seismic support sort of became the most elegant solution in the end. The owner's dedication to maintaining the character of the original structure, sustainability, and a deep connection to the site echoed through all aspects of the project, fortuitously saving on construction costs down the line. Michael, the, the owner, had been stockpiling trees that were they're all naturally felled in the hillside there. And once he got control of the property, he had been sort of pulling all these trees out of the forest, just kind of like to, to keep the sort of health of the forest. He'd been stockpiling these logs. So when we, you know, initial meetings coming out to the farm, were kind of walking around and there was a lot of detritus of, of things, you know, of elements that were sort of left over from the, the previous farmer that owned it. And, but Michael had been stockpiling all these logs and he was thrilled by this collection of, of logs that he had. And he also happens to own a wood miser mill that it's a 20 foot mill that lives, lives on the site. And he had been sort of working with it and, and building things with it previous to this project and kind of like familiarizing himself with it. But, you know, you've, if you've got a bunch of logs and you've got a mill, put those two things together and there's a lot of possibilities that you can have. But all those things, again, like asking this question of like, what would the farmer do? What would the farmer do? This is sort of like a conceptual underpinning to the project. So in, in doing so, we we knew we had sort of the this legacy of this heavy timber barn and this kind of like, you can very clearly see how this barn was made. It's like very structurally honest thing. The, the beams that go across the, the width of the barn are full trees. Um, they alternate the, the, the trunks. Yeah, the head and foot. So it's a tapered end at one end and a tapered end at the other end. Yeah. Incredibly elegant structure. So we had this kind of legacy to work with. And so we had all sort of committed to this idea that we would create sort of some of the signature pieces of structure in the new buildings with these trees that could be milled on site. And so working with the contractor, working with the owner, and then our structural engineer, we sort of developed a program of, of how all of this could come together, taking the, the trees, moving them to the mill, milling them up to a dimensional size, and then putting together a truss. And what was really amazing and fortuitous for, 
for everybody is that we were we started this project. The construction started in February of 2020, so we all sort of you know the world is about to change in front of our in front of our faces. And part of that was the the sort of escalation of of timber uh, wood products. And so, but they had this program in place, and so we'd we'd already committed to making these trusses as part of the the sort of design of the project. But we didn't, we couldn't foresee what was to come. But because we had this program in place, they could also mill a lot of the sort of stick framing that was required to for the project, and you know some of the larger header elements for the project, and kind of be able to save a lot of the money that they would have otherwise would have escalated in material costs uh, by supplying their own wood to the project. The real trick was supplied by the structural engineer. One of the early meetings, the structural engineers from Grimmel Engineering were out on site. Michael Etzel is there. He points to these logs like, what can we do with this? Can we use these? And the engineer is like, well, of course, your problem is, you know, we're going to specify these. They have to be graded to a certain structural capacity. There's lots that's involved with that. Graders are in lumber mills. And, and so the challenge was, okay, let's, how are we going to get these things milled on site and graded on site? And so we called up Western Wood Products Association. It's the local grading association here. They have professionals that go out to all the mills that supply all the lumber for all the lumber yards that are around. Luckily, we connected with a gentleman named Pete Austin, who happens to live about 20 minutes away from the winery site, loves wine and was willing to do site grading. I think it's a, it's a provision in their rules that it's possible. It's not something that typically gets done. And so not only do they have this naturally felled pile of logs, uh, a wood miser to mill them up, but we struck up a relationship with a wood grader who'd come out. Not every piece that got milled up ended up getting used. You know, he was able to direct what, what could be selected. So it was graded, met all the structural specifications, and then fabrication of these these heavy timber trusses, you know, happened on site, chainsaws and and drills, and was able to get put up. It's, it was a real connection between all of these parties, the engineers, us as designers, the owners, to make is a sort of magic happening. They're really serendipitous for us to be able to use the same trees that were used to build the barn originally. We were able to use to build the new structures. And so there was a real connection, both historical, resource connection between the barn and the new buildings that you can feel when you're out there because, you, you know, the, it's the same type of species of wood and it's like old wood, new wood. Couldn't be more happy with the, that, that it turned out that way. While the barn was the nucleus of the winery, it was not the only structure to find new purpose. The team found ingenious uses for a grain silo, hay shed, milk shed, and an underground silage tank. The grain silo was appropriate as a vertical shaft to be an egress there because it, connect, it, it was tall enough to be connected to the second floor and to the first floor. What was called the milk shed was just the perfect size for the public restrooms that were there. The hay shed was, was actually pretty broad and, and, and long and was big enough for the barrel cellar that they were looking for. And then the other sort of major renovation piece was there was a underground what's called a silage tank which is where all the cow manure goes because uh, all, all that gets saved to be used as fertilizer later you know on the farm and the winemaker wanted to put the barrel cellar in the silage uh, tank and so we actually were able to take that the grain silo the stair we put an egress stair in there and we dug down below the silo and brought that stair to the a subterranean level and we're able to save that, use that silage tank as the barrel cellar. 
So these sort of four elements all had to be renovated, rehabilitated, reconstructed in, 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 at different levels. Some of them were taken down completely and, and rebuilt, and others we just grafted onto those. The silo itself is kind of a whole story. It, that sort of idea of putting a, a cantilevered spiral stair in an interior of a silo that then corkscrews into the ground and connects itself to a uh, hidden, you know, silage pit sounds like a school project, honestly. And, and if this whole project would have just been to do that, we would have been completely thrilled yeah. to take this on. But it really came about through through the process. And we were pretty deep into CDs whenever the owner sort of kind of had this idea or this understanding of the relationship between, you know, we knew we, we wanted to put a stair down to that, that subterranean pit. And then we also needed a second stair for the barn. And he, you know, he's out there, he, he lives right up the hill. So he's out there all the time. And he's kind of like sizing this whole situation up and he calls us and he's like, what, what if we were to put a stair in the silo and that stair, where's the one that connected to the, to the underground pit. And we were both just thrilled with this idea. And so, you know, that we sort of then embarked on that, but quite late in the design process. So it kind of became its own kind of special project to the overall project as we were moving through things. But yeah, everything sort of aligned in the construction sequence really, really beautifully. And it, it all worked out really nice. Now with an underground barrel storage and only spiral stair access, you may be wondering, how do you retrieve the barrels? The reason why it's a cantilevered circular stair is to allow for the interior of that to be structure free. Part of the idea there is that they can take barrels through with a forklift. We designed the railing to be demountable at the ground level. So you can take the barrels into the forklift and then those can be lowered down through the center opening that's created by the, the spiral stair. And so they, they can actually use that, that sort of a negative space from the stair to get barrels up and down into the barrel cellar. So the, it became a very elegant solution, both just for the, the sort of quality and experience of the, of the element, but also for the functionality of how, how it would get used uh, very frequently throughout the year. We learned a lot about winemaking in this project, which was really fun for us. One of the details is that wine barrels don't get moved when they have liquid in them. So they're not, they're not light objects, but they're much lighter when they don't have that volume of liquid inside. And so they can put three of these barrels on a, a pallet and lower them down at one time. You know, in the, so we just made sure that the amount of space, the negative space existed to be able to get three barrels down. You know, like the plan drawings for the stair or it's the spiral stairs with these three circles <laughs> always, like just always existed there. It was, a, it was a perceptive question because that was like as part of the program that made that stair the shape it is. Inside, the design found a balance of old and new, maintaining the ethos of natural and reclaimed materials. We wanted it to be clear when you came to this project what was new and, and what was old. So we used old materials in, in, in the new buildings and we used some new materials in, in the old buildings, of course, but there was a sort of a coding to all of that um, that we were really excited about. In particular, with the tasting room, the flooring, which is this beautiful, clear vertical grain fur floor that existed in the, the original farmhouse that was on the property that was deconstructed because it, it had 
it was too far gone in its life, but it was, it was carefully deconstructed. And a lot of that material was, was saved. We used the floor in the taste room just because it's, it's such a beautiful material. And, and the, you know, it's an old growth. It's made from a tree that, that was used 150 years ago that, that was already probably 300 years old. So it, it's a very sort of old, old material. But we, we sort of placed it in the tasting room in a very, you know, using sort of flush detailing, very, very sort of contemporary use. So you're using an old material in a very new way. And that was the same with the wood paneling in the tasting room. The side buildings to the barn were deconstructed. That was all um, collected, remilled, and then replaced um, in, in, with very, very careful detailing and the way it was reused. So the, the texture of the material is, has a lot of flaws in it. It has knots. It has, you know, there's, there's evidence of insects sort of moving through it and eating, eating it, but it's all kind of very carefully put together. And it's, so there's a resonance to that, that, that we found uh, that, that really quite special to, to the way that the, the place works. And at one point, well, actually the first visit to the farm, we found these, these rusted steel plates that had uh, these really gorgeous arch shapes punched out of them. So they were sort of like grating with a figure. It was, they were really beautiful. Quarter-inch thick steel. Yeah, it was very, like real, you know, we, we're, we're still baffled to what this was used for. But, it, you know, any sort of anybody, especially an architect, would look at this and just kind of fall in love with it. And so this was always in the back of our heads. And we ended up deploying that in, the, in that barrel. The doors into that barrel cellar are clad in the, with this grating. So you're sort of like pulling that, that sort of deep patina into uh, a very new, a very new use. And it's, it's sort of out of context. And so you, you tend to recognize it and um, sort of take some sort of care when, when you approach it, because you're, you're, you, you recognize that it's old, but you don't really know where it came from or, or why it might be there. Being on the interior there was trying to save as much of the existing fabric as possible to let the barn, you know, talk, tell its original story for even for new people who are walking inside. But there's still, there just, there are functional things that need to happen inside the barn. And so one of the things we did was take away the flooring on the second floor. It's a two-story building. The upper level was the hayloft. There was a small hole to pull hay in, but that was a bit like almost a dark cavernous space on the upper level because you know, hay doesn't want light, doesn't want water to get in. And so how do we use this space but in the lower level had some light from the very large barn doors on the side. But if you're going to be making wine, wine, you know, originally was made outside and, you know, winemakers love to you know, make wine in natural daylight. So the barn, one of the big changes to the interior was removing part of the second floor to create this sort of double height central aisle. And then also running a, cutting a series of skylights in the roof along that whole central aisle to bring light down into that first floor to have light. So there's ample natural light in there. To a certain degree, this spiritually comes from the, from the owner, Michael. He's the, he want, wanted this space to be a cathedral for winemaking. And so we basically double height, made the space double height and brought light in and made it a cathedral for, for, for winemaking. And so those interiors were all about just whitewashing, bringing light in and, and keeping as much as, as possible. There is a tasting room space so a winery, you know, it, from the beginning, we didn't really have a clear picture. Of, when I think of a winery, I think of the tasting room primarily because that's that's how I engage the the winery. But a winery, you know, of square footage wise, it's ninety five percent production space, five percent, 
hospitality space in this in this winery. And that was a choice by the owners to keep the tasting room small because you can have, if you go, when you go, you're going to walk into the tasting room, you're going to get introduced to the wines, and then they're going to take you through the facility because for them, the production of the wine is the real story. It's the story that Michael, he, he was a winemaker. He's a wine, winery owner as a winemaker, and that's the story that he wanted to tell. And so you'll be tasting wine in the barn, in the barrel cellar. There's a tasting table at the bottom of the silo. So you'll be all over tasting in there. And there are many different interior finishes in the, in the tasting room. It's reclaimed, the reclaimed wood from all over the barn. And in the new production spaces, uh, some cases it's simple. It's, you know, it's sheetrock or it can be FRP where it needs to be for, for spaces that need to be washed down heavily, you know, winery, it's a food production facility. So in a lot of the production spaces, we had to design it and have it constructed as a food production facility that meets all the rules and standards that those have to be met for cleanliness and, and for uh, workers' rights. But then in many of the spaces, they wanted to be as hospitable as others. And so there's a staff a kitchen that is also a tasting space. And the interior there is we had plaster uh, uh, put on the walls um, instead of sheetrock, j- just making the richness of that space a little bit higher, bring that, that up. So I, I would say there's it's a real mix of reclaimed and new and very practical and then tending towards very sort of hospitable in terms of like a range of materials that got deployed. You know, we, we mentioned the sort of reclamation of those of those finishes, but the idea of the tasting room is to sort of pull you to all these connections in the landscape. But, you know, there's some connections to the barn and then there's other connections to an old uh, apple orchard that was part of the original farm. There's another connection to the creek because it's sort of located right on this existing creek. And in doing so, we really, you know, wanted the the layer between you and the interior and the exterior to, to go away as much as possible. And so we uh, were, had the opportunity to work with uh, the same steel fabricator that made those doors to design and fabricate a steel window system that was something, you know, all the styles and rails of that are very minimal. We wanted very little frame to be a part of the conversation of your experience between what is interior and, and, the, and the landscape, but they also pocket into the walls. And so all of these doors and windows, they can slide and disappear in the wall behind them. And so when it's, when it's open, it really can sort of become a pavilion where you're, you're, you feel very held and it's, it's, it's a hospitable sort of interior um, in a lot of different ways, but you have these like very sort of interesting and safe connections to either the flurry of work that's happening in the barn or the kind of the tranquility of the, of the Creek that's just adjacent to you. Even the, the, those elements that were absolutely new and absolutely, absolutely contemporary were kind of, you know, we tried to do them in a way that did not sort of overpower the, the story of the of that experience of being on the farm and sort of having connections with the landscape and the the sort of the work that's happening in the winery. From lifting and rehabilitating a near century old barn to developing an on-site tree mill process, the delivery of Sequitur Winery had numerous innovative solutions to learn from and carry into future work. So as we we're saying, the, you know, the bar got lifted up. Uh, the foundations were, were rotted and failed. 
just from the nature of it being places where animals were, places that had to be cleaned, all of the timbers where they came down and met the foundations were rotted. Each timber was rotted to a different height, each, each post, both along the sides and, and down the center aisle. And so when we lifted this thing up, it's very easy to see how much we have to cut off. In some cases, it's six inches, in some cases, three feet. And knowing that when we put this thing back down, we have to marry those posts to foundations that are going to be at a consistent height. How we spliced these became a really important, you know, both design decision as well as just practical decision. And it was a similar, there's so many other aspects to you reusing an old structure for new purposes. And what we ended up realizing, if you just set the rules, if the rule was going to be anytime there's a new structural element that's going to be spliced in, we want, if we want to respect the soul of the barn, we don't want to pretend that this new thing is old. We want to respect that old things are old and then show that new things are new. And so the post spaces, these are round posts, a series of circular collars that are different heights and different diameters to match the posts, sort of splicing on these sort of steel bases that end up marrying uh, into the, the concrete foundations, but painted them all black, which is the same color that we painted all the structural retrofittings, all the cross bracing and all of the steel collars. So that when you walk into the barn, you know, the barn ultimately was whitewashed which is a pretty typical, you know, sort of farmer thing to do, which is come in, let's, you know, slap a new coat of wash on it to help marry things and, and protect it again. This white barn, there are in elements of black steel that exist within it so that it's very clear. The rules were set. There was a sort of order that keeps everything sort of feeling calm. And so the experience, you really get the feeling of what's old in there by making the new things even if they have to be of various sizes, you know, Kevin, to keep them as regular as possible. Yeah, I think we learned in working with all these found conditions that you're, it's the wrong, um, the wrong attitude is to try to wrestle this thing to the ground. You know, you have to dance with it. And part of that is, is designing for the margins and building in the sort of building in the improvised within the, within the rules. So you, you set the rules, the rules are clear. But whether or not that rule says that something's 18 inches tall or 24 inches tall, it doesn't really matter at that point. Now we're just negotiating between two sort of conditions in the project. And sort of like letting those margins become the story of the project is really where we found a lot of the success in it. And so I think our sort of ability to be flexible and everybody's ability to be flexible, really, like to give credit to everybody, the owner, the contractor, everybody involved, because you're, you're sort of you're, you're navigating this, this very um, uh, strong voice in the project. And, and that voice really becomes a, a key character to, to the team here. You know, the, those buildings, that barn, you know, they, they had as much to say about this project as any other one of us. Mm-hmm. And be, bringing that dialogue into the process was really critical. So when there were challenges, those challenges, hey, there was a framework to meet those challenges. In the end, hopefully that there's a sort of, there's a clarity to, to how we met those challenges in the project. And we were quite honest about where those challenges live, but the whole thing sort of resonates together as one, one piece. Yeah. One, one other story has to do with that, with the barn, but with the silo and the silo, silo was deconstructed. It was a concrete stave structure, which is really like one foot wide by two foot tall concrete, two inch thick concrete 
panels that interlock and course out like a running vertical running bond set in a circle and built up. And it's, that's, it's, it's holds itself up and it can hold grain inside, but it wasn't appropriate for holding up the spiral stair. And so in the end, we ended up looking, investigating a lot of techniques for infilling this with other, with a structure that was appropriate, but the right solution was uh, sprayed on concrete, uh, shotcrete. And so there's a, the staves were rebuilt and then uh, shotcrete was, was blown in to the project. Shotcrete's an inherently imprecise construction technique. And so when the stair was being fabricated, the steel fabricators who, uh, you know, really are of the highest quality, they have, you know, contemporary digital uh, measuring point cloud, laser measuring tools. They came in, scanned the entire silo to understand, because it really wasn't a round shaft. It was a bumpy, wavy, ovular sometimes shaft so that they can fabricate their steel, which is not going to be flexible when it gets brought in. They can understand where, where they're working. And so it's a mix of you know, techniques for, for dealing with older structures that range from you know, respecting the margins to using hyper contemporary digital scanning technologies. That's what helped work in that particular instance. After this experience, Chris and Brent shared insightful advice for anyone taking on a similar project. This really is a dance. You're, you're going to enter into a conversation with this sort of with this building or with this condition, whatever you're working within and, and being sort of able to have a conversation with it and not just dictate to it for sure would be hugely important kind of an attitude to have. And we really love working in this way. We love the kind of like, if there isn't a conversation with a found object, we tend to create one, you know, within the studio, we, we make concept models. We typically make them out of the materials that will become deployed on the project. And so we can enter in and do a dialogue with those materials ourselves. So we can kind of, it both influences the design of the project, but it also brings with it, we, we now have experience working with the materials and we can talk with the subs or the contractor, whoever it may be, the owner, and, and what, what are those materials kind of telling us? You know, what are they saying to us? And so that, that sort of just openness to, to what you're working on, what you're trying to ask it to do, what, what are you bringing to it physically, but also in that conversation, what are you bringing to it? Attitude of improvisation like really has, does have some nuts and bolts to it. It's like if you're, when you're writing your agreements, make sure you give enough time to CA. I mean, I think like, CA on this project was, it was a significant build time. It was a significant amount of hours like per week that we spent on the project. And I think the advice we tell ourselves going forward into this would be make sure you, you know, structure your, your agreements correctly to l- allow the space for that. So that's one. And then another thing that I think we can think of here is that the, on a reuse project, use has to tailor to the resource. And so during programming phase, making sure to work with uh, owners or the people who are going to be and, and the folks who are going to be using and being in the space to just make sure they understand that they have a vision for how something could work in a sort of generic sense. But we really have to tailor how you're going to be doing this work to a very specific you know, suit that you're going to have to put on every day, which is this building. So like, thinking of programming more as tailoring than just working in the abstract. Suckwater Winery is a testament to the marriage of tradition and innovation. It emerges not just as a place for winemaking, but as a story 
where every architectural choice, every reclaimed timber, and every thoughtful detail becomes a chapter in the journey of Sequitur Wines and its surrounding environment. I really enjoyed this conversation with Brent and Chris. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. It's to always be useful and have optimism, be productive, and and sort of help to to always bring one foot in front of the other one moving through whatever the whatever it is that that we're working on. And I think that, you know, trying to be mindful that, you know, not everything that we're doing every day is is geared towards saving the world, but we are we are being responsible to our people, our clients, and to our projects. And that, you know, over and over and over again produces something that that can sort of set a standard or be something that people can look to and how they behave within our own small sort of ecosystem that we that we operate in. So just continuing to do that and set good examples along the way. Yeah, Chris and I share this the, the same sort of worldview, optimism, small moves, and sort of infectious positivity. Comport ourselves in a way that that positivity doesn't just live in this sphere, but it sort of grows out. Luckily, we get to work on projects with big teams. And if we can present ourselves in a way where we're, we're really vibing with the, the positive you know, feelings about the project, but also about the, you know, the design or you know, any aspect of engagement with each other, presenting ourselves in a way where that positivity is infectious is, is really important to us. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.